Acts chapter 17. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw many of your shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. And others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. I want to suggest this morning that the more things change, the more they stay the same. One scholar said this, 20 centuries have echoed the laughter of the Areopagus concerning the resurrection of the body. People laughed then, and people laugh today. The question in many people's minds is, what good does religion do? What's all this about? What's one's religion what does it accomplish? There are people who have all kinds of philosophies, all kinds of approaches, all kinds of understanding of how to get to God or how God has come to us. And quite often, a person's religion, a person's faith is predicated upon what one gets out of it. What's the immediate payoff? What's the immediate benefit? Some are looking for wealth. Some are looking for health. Some are looking for status. Some are looking for pleasure. What does religion do for you? Turn in your Bibles this morning, please, to 1 Corinthians as we continue on in our series in this New Testament book that Paul, this letter that Paul wrote to a church in Corinth in ancient Greece 2,000 years ago. If you use a pew Bible, you'll find our text today on page 1222, 1222. Please turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. Because evidently what we find is that this utilitarian approach to religion, it seems to have affected the Corinthian church. Though they believed in Jesus, though they are called earlier in the letter, Paul calls them all saints, though they are Jesus followers, somehow in the practice of their following Jesus, they had adopted a kind of utilitarian, what's in it for me, immediate benefit approach to the faith. So much so, and this jumps into next week's text, but so much so, look down in verse 12, 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. And in all of these texts today, I remind you, this is God's word for us. Look in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, and by the way, he is, and he was, here's his question. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, this seems to be an odd statement, an odd question. How could people in a Christian church be suggesting that there is no resurrection from the dead? Yet that was the problem in the church at Corinth. They had accepted and believed in Jesus' resurrection. They had acknowledged that Jesus had come out of the tomb, but they were expressing a level of skepticism about their own resurrection. Now, why would this be? What's going on here 2,000 years ago? There was a philosophical worldliness that had infected the church at Corinth. If you are into philosophy, you'll recognize it. It's called dualism. It's the idea that all that matters is the spiritual. Dualism was rife in the Greek culture of the time and Roman culture. And the idea was matter itself is evil, or at best it's useless. And so the body is a necessary evil. And yet there was no real value in the body. The body is useless. All that matters is the soul. And so you often have these references to the body as the prison house of the soul. The soul is what matters. And one day at death, this philosophy said, you are released from your prison house. And so then you finally you are free. Whatever their view of that was, a disembodied spirit, some kind of odd reincarnation, whatever it represented, it had little value for the body. The idea of life after death in a bodily existence was considered foolish. It was considered unsophisticated. It was really a kind of fairy tale. Or better, it was probably a horror story. Because they were saying, why would you want to live forever in a body? The body is evil, the body is useless, the body is no good. And so their understanding of the resurrection, they had adopted the philosophy of the world around them that there was some kind of resurrection. You had existence. They believed in Jesus and they believed in the promise of eternal life. But they had separated that promise from the promise of the bodily resurrection. And you see, what's really happening here is they were influenced. We keep using the term worldliness, although it's an old-fashioned term, because there's no better world, word for it. They had adopted this philosophy of the culture around them, that all that mattered was spiritual, and in doing so, they were dismissing a key core component of faith in Jesus. And the motivating factor is their approach to religion was some kind of immediate payoff. Their question was this, <coughs> excuse me, what good is the idea of an eventual bodily resurrection, what good does that do me now? I'm looking for something to get ahead now. I'm looking for some benefit today. And yet the delayed benefits, the deferred blessing that is promised as part of following Jesus, they saw little value to. And so the reality was in contrast to that, According to the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus is not merely utilitarian. Following Jesus is not just an add-on for your life. You don't, you don't come to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, you don't come to, 
excuse me, biblical Christianity, you don't come to Christianity with a sense of, what's this going to do for me now? It, it, it's not a life hack, if you understand what that term means. It's not just an add-on. It's not extracurricular. According to the New Testament, it's a life-changing paradigm. It changes everything. It changes everything in the future. It changes your past, and it changes today. And that's what we find in our text. It's an entirely new way of looking at life. And by the reason, that's the reason, by the way, that's the reason coming to the Lord's Day worship every week is so important. Because if we neglect this, we fail to hit reset. We, we, this is an opportunity for us every seven days. It's an opportunity for us to remind ourselves, to stop and remind ourselves, wait a minute, there's something greater than the problems I'm having with my finances. There's something broader than the heartache I have in my family. There's something bigger than all of the chaos that we see in the culture around us. And it is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And on Sunday morning, it enables us to, here's the biblical term, renew our minds. We have our minds renewed with the centrality and the fundamental truths of the gospel. And that's what the apostle is trying to do for this ancient church in Corinth in what we call chapter 15. So glance at it with me again. Go up to verse 1, and let's see what he says here. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. If you knew Greek, it's interesting the way this would be phrased. If you're going to be very literalistic, it's the gospel I gospeled to you. It's the good news I good newsed to you. It's the evangelion that I evangelioned to you. That's, that's what he's saying. He, it's an emphasis on this good news, and he proclaims the good news as good news. It's something that would, would be striking. It's something that should strike us and grab our attention. This gospel that I preached to you, that I gospeled to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now let me stop right there. What does he mean when he says, unless they believed in vain? A lot of people think it's false faith. And there is such a thing as false faith. Shallow, self-centered, not genuine faith. That's true. But I don't think that's what he's saying here. Because he's beginning a long explanation of the influence and the importance of the real resurrection of Jesus. What we're going to find over the next few weeks is that if you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you've denied the gospel. And I think that's what he's getting at here. He's saying, if what you're saying is true, whatever this contingent in the church was saying that the resurrection doesn't matter, he's saying, what have you believed in? What's the point of it all? And he's going to circle around to those principles several times in what we call chapter 15. And so we'll see that again. But what we find here is the importance of it. Notice in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what follows is very likely the earliest record of Jesus' resurrection. It's uncorrupted. It's the heart of Christianity. And the words that follow seem to be almost a kind of creed, a creedal-like statement about what the believers understood and believed that we now understand out of the Word of God to be the core 
events that bring about the good news. These words are the heart of the gospel. And before we're through, I hope we'll see this morning why they're so important. The question is this, do we believe? And what do we do about our doubts? Because the doubts are sometimes there. The questions are there. We've raised children, and now we're watching our children raise children. We have all kinds of opinions about how they're doing that, as you might understand. But nevertheless, and we're watching our grandchildren who are beginning to come to faith. And in beginning to come to faith and becoming young adults, some of them are beginning to ask questions. And the questions are legitimate questions. They're questions that we want them to ask. We don't want them just to have a a faith they adopt because it's the faith of their parents and grandparents. They need to process through these questions on their own, not on their own in isolation, but they need to ask and answer the questions so that the faith is owned in their own hearts. But all of us experience this. What, what can we be sure of? Why are we here today? Why does this building exist on this corner? Why, why do we put all this effort and time and, and you give sacrificially of your funds in order to keep the church going? What is it about? Does it mean anything? I want to tell you that our text this morning addresses and answers those important questions. And so let's dive into them. What we find here to begin with is we find three foundations of the gospel. Three foundations of the gospel. A little bit later I'll use the metaphor of a three-legged stool. And these are three legs of this stool that represents the gospel. The three foundations of the gospel. First of all, the gospel is rooted in the scriptures. The gospel is rooted in the scriptures. And when I say that in context, I mean the scriptures of ancient Israel. You and I call it the Old Testament. And what the Word of God argues here in the book of 1 Corinthians, what the apostle writes, is that a foundation of the gospel is what God had said in the Old Testament scriptures. We see this in verses 3 and into verse 4. Notice with me. It says at the end of verse 3 that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. Now the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul refers to the Old Testament over a hundred times by either quoting or alluding to what you and I call the Old Testament. And the Old Testament predicted, predicated, set forth the promise of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, you could say, is the subject of the Old Testament. And the gospel is rooted in the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament. There's a focus not so much on his life, but on his death and on his resurrection. The theologians call this the work of Christ. And the work of Christ is the fact that he offered himself in death, and then he conquered death in resurrection. This is the ground of the gospel. This is what we find in this text. And Jesus himself claimed this when he was on earth. You remember in Luke chapter 24, he said, beginning with, or it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The ground of the gospel begins in the scriptures. In that same chapter, verse 44, then Jesus said to them, 
These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And those three categories broadly refer to the three categories of what, again, we call the Old Testament. And Jesus was saying, the Old Testament, it's about me. The ground of the gospel is revealed in the holy writings, in the scriptures. Let me give you just one example of the death and resurrection in what we call the Old Testament. The truth is the entire sacrificial system predicted Jesus, but you know this passage about his death in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought his peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Crushed, he bore our iniquities, he died for our sins. Here is his death. And it's not in the writings of Paul, it's in the writings of Isaiah, in the writings of the scriptures of Israel. His death was there. Also, his resurrection was there. There are many examples of this, but let me just give you one in Psalm 16. The psalmist said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And there's a sense in which all those who are gods are considered holy ones, but there is also a double meaning where the ultimate holy one would not see corruption. And what the Apostle Paul said is that the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not just created out of whole cloth. It's not just that there was a rabbi from Nazareth and and we made up these things about the way that he died, the tragic way that he died. They saw the events of his death And by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and minds, they were able to look back into their scriptures and see, wait a minute, all of this was predicted. All of this was contained. It was promised in the scriptures of Israel. The gospel is rooted in the scriptures. And the glorious truth is his death, it represents the fact that he was truly human. His resurrection represents the fact that he was truly divine. And there's great mystery there but that's the nature of Jesus Christ. So there are three foundations here. The first is that the gospel is rooted in the scriptures. Now, let's suppose perhaps you, you're a skeptic, perhaps, and someone hears this and says, that's all you got? Some ancient book from the Jews? That, that, that's what you got? That's the reason you think there's a solid foundation for the gospel of Jesus because somebody's holy book says so? And you recognize as well as I do, a skeptic is going to say, what makes that holy book any more special than anybody else's holy book? Now, that's a legitimate question. There are good answers to it. But for this morning, I want you to see that that's not all we have. Even though we do have that, we do have certainty that the gospel is rooted in the scriptures. Secondly, the gospel is also rooted in history. And that's where Paul goes next. Look at it again. He really deals with the evidence. He reveals the evidence of the historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, look at verse 3. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, and that's a statement of fact. You might dispute it, but Paul was saying this happened in history. Now note that because it's important. I'll show you why in just a moment. Christ died for our sins, 
in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried. Have you ever wondered why that's in there? I mean, that's what happens after someone dies. They're buried, right? So why is that added? It's added to, this will be important over the next several weeks, it's added to emphasize the fact that his body was real. It was a human body. And he really was dead. I mean, literally, you could say what Paul is saying here, he was dead and buried, as though it's over. But of course, we know that it wasn't. Go on. That he was buried, verse 4, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, and various appearances are not listed here. This is not an exhaustive list, but he gives a list of appearances to eyewitnesses. Verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. To sleep for a believer is a metaphor for death, and it's beautiful in this context because it implies what? One day we're going to wake up. Our, our, our souls are with God, our bodies are in the ground, but one day we're going to, it's, it's going to be wake-up call. And we're going to be awakened. Sleep is a beautiful metaphor for death of the believer. Then he appeared to James, very likely that's James, the brother, his own brother, the brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. Now listen carefully, what's he saying here? He's giving historical evidence. This is not hearsay, Paul is saying. When Paul wrote this, not more than 20 to 25 years had passed since the resurrection. And he even makes the point, these witnesses are still alive. The implicit point is, go ask them. If you don't buy it, go ask them. Now, we don't have that opportunity now because they no longer live, but we have a valid, pretty thorough, historical claim that there were eyewitnesses, perhaps as many as 600, that were living at this time that could give testimony testimony to the fact that Jesus' body came out of the tomb. That's a powerful body of evidence, and that's what Paul wants us to see. He's wanting to see not only is the gospel grounded in the scriptures, it's also grounded in history. It's grounded in verifiable, eyewitness-verified history. And therefore, there is good reason to believe this is not an Easter sermon. I could go into the other evidences of the resurrection, not just the eyewitnesses, but the fact that the tomb was empty. If Jesus had not resurrected from the tomb when this message of resurrection began to be preached, all the Jewish leaders or the Roman leaders had to do was to go move the stone, take the body of Jesus, put it in an ox cart, and roll it through the center of Jerusalem. That would have ended Christianity. But the tomb was empty. There's also the change in the disciples the account we have of the disciples is they were fearful, they were hiding, and yet something happened to where within a generation they had turned the world upside down. There are all of these evidences that the resurrection really happened. And let me tell you that they tell us that in the ancient world, this kind of argumentation that we're fairly familiar with, it was really quite rare. It was unusual for an author to build this kind of evidential case it's virtually unparalleled in the ancient world, one scholar says. But where there is this kind of evidence, if it's referring to a battle, or if it's referring to a building project, 
or if it's referring to a king in some kingdom, historians get all excited and they think, look at this historical evidence. Isn't it wonderful that we can know about this in history? But when those same historians, skeptics, come up against the verified testimony of eyewitnesses that are recorded in history and have been passed down for 20 centuries, you know what the skeptics say. Yeah, you can't trust that. It's, their response is determined by their presuppositions. But what Paul says is that the gospel is grounded not just in the scriptures, but also the gospel is grounded in the acts of history, in the evidences of history. And then third, the gospel is rooted and grounded, thirdly, in experience. In experience. Look back at verse 8 with me. Paul says this, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Untimely born, the Greek word there is a, a strange, a rare word. It essentially is a miscarriage or an abortion. Uh, some think, think that it was a term of abuse used against Paul. We have other, other evidences that Paul wasn't exactly, uh, he didn't look like a model. It, he wasn't a GQ kind of guy. Evidently, his appearance was pretty unimpressive. So some people think that Paul is leveraging that abuse. I think it's more likely that, that he's basically saying, I experienced a miraculous spiritual rebirth as though a baby born, stillborn, comes to life. Uh, one scholar says it this way, I was a miscarriage of a man until the gospel comes. Verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the way, that's a pretty grim element on your resume. You know, if you're going to apply to be an apostle, oh, well, my experience is I hounded Christians to death. And yet that was Paul's story. By the way, that's the glory of the gospel. All of us have elements on our resume we wish weren't there. Don't you? Parts of your resume you wish you could go back and rewrite, which seems to be done pretty commonly these days. All of us wish we could do that. And what the gospel of grace does, the gospel of grace forgives that, wipes that clean. Paul said, I was unworthy. I persecuted the church of God. And then the Greek, it's emphatic here in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, the other apostles. He's making up for lost time here. He's not, it sounds like when we read it, he's throwing the other apostles under the bus, right? But that's not what he's doing. He's contrasting his own level of, of his feeling of not being worthy and yet exalting the grace of God. And he says, because of this, I'm making up for lost time and I'm showing the glory of the grace of God. He's, it, this is his gratitude. It's his passion and so he says it this way, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Now, you know what Paul is saying here? He's saying the gospel is not merely theoretical. It's not merely abstract. His life had been changed, and it had been changed dramatically. Now, we have to be careful here. Personal experience alone would not be sufficient, would it? If we didn't have the Old Testament scriptures, if we didn't have the historical evidence, 
And all we had was a writing from some guy named Paul who said, hey, my life was really changed by a guy named Jesus. Would you vest your eternal hope in that? His personal experience is real and significant, but in and of itself, it would not be sufficient. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning, and I do this at the risk of being misunderstood, but not one of these three alone would have been sufficient to really advance the gospel. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that all we had, I've already referred to this, all we had were the Old Testament scriptures. That we didn't have any historical evidence and we didn't have any personal experience with the gospel. What good would that do in recommending and committing the gospel to people's lives? Because, well, someone could well say, you know, that's the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament, they're no different from the book of um, the Book of Mormon or the Quran or some other holy book. The scriptures alone, don't misunderstand me, they are sufficient as the Word of God. But for the sake of establishing the gospel in our lives, you also have this historical evidence. But what if all we had were the historical evidence? All we had were these historical events from Jesus' life. They would only be interpreted by whoever was telling the story. They wouldn't be grounded in the authority of Scripture and they wouldn't be applied in our lives. And as I've already said, our personal experience is the weakest of all. You have people in your neighborhood that will give you all kinds of personal experiences about their faith, about what matters to them, but all it represents is their own personal opinion. Again, it's like a three-legged stool. Every leg is important. And what we find here, this is the argumentation of Paul. He says, it's rooted in the Scriptures, it's rooted in history, and it's changed my life. These are the foundations that he gives for the gospel. And by the way, we're going to come to the table this morning. And as we experience the bread and the cup, you recognize that all three of these elements are here. Uh, all, all three of these components, these foundations, will acknowledge. We'll acknowledge that what we are doing is rooted in the scriptures. We'll quote scripture as we take the Lord's table. We also acknowledge that we are representing something that truly happened. In fact, that's one of the reasons I believe that God gave us this ritual is that we have to hold in our hand a physical representation of something that literally took place in history. So there's a historical representation at the table. And then, of course, it's personal. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's a time for us to express, to remember, to reflect upon our own personal experience with Jesus in the gospel. It's a glorious, glorious thing. We have a certainty about the gospel. And as Paul was writing to these Corinthians who wanted to make it such a personalized, immediate, utilitarian thing, Paul was saying there's something far more dramatic happening here. There's something far greater. It, it touches history and it moves into the future and it should make a difference in every aspect of our lives. And that's what we find as we circle back and glance at the text one more time. I want to give you this morning four practical, real-life implications. Four practical, real-life implications about the gospel. Here's the first. In the gospel, we find belonging for repentant rebels. For rebels who repent... <coughs> Excuse me, for rebels who repent, we find a place of belonging. 
a place of belonging. In verse 1, he said, you have received this. In verse 12, he says, you believed this. People who are rebels find a place to belong. Now, the truth is, rebellion comes in all shapes and sizes. Paul is an example of rebellion here. He was a persecutor of the church. He was active in his hatred for the message of Jesus. But his life was completely turned around. Some of us, perhaps you've got that kind of testimony. For others of us, we weren't that kind of rebel. We were just a quiet rebel. We were the kind of rebel that just said, I'm going to live my way no matter what. We're not blatant in our rebellion, but it's no less real. By the way, that rebellion is our sinful DNA. It's, we're born with it. It's the attitude of those that crucified Jesus who said, we won't have this man to rule over us. It's that independence. It's that insistence that we will be our own God. We're not willing to say Jesus is Lord. We don't even necessarily feel like we're saying Caesar is Lord because we basically are saying, I am Lord. That's rebellion. And you have an example of that. Paul refers to James, the brother of Jesus. We have an example of that in his life. Back in John chapter 7, the author John, referring to occurrences during Jesus' earthly ministry, said, for not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. So during Jesus' earthly ministry, before his death, his family, at least his brothers and sisters, did not acknowledge that he was Messiah. But something happened immediately after the resurrection. Because when you go to Acts chapter 1, look at what we read. All these, the believers after the resurrection, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Something happened to James, who it doesn't appear like was any kind of radical rebel against his brother. He just didn't buy it. He just wasn't willing to believe. And yet, with the resurrection of Jesus, something happened. And you know what happened with James? You go into the book of Galatians. We find it later in Acts, but it's clear to see in Galatians too. We read there, and when James and Cephas, or Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. Pillar in the church. That's where James ended up. So he was just a regular guy who was living his own life, and he looked at Jesus, his brother, and said, I don't buy it. And something happened with the death and resurrection of Jesus, and he became a believer, and he moved to the place where he was a pillar, a leader in the church at Jerusalem. What's the point? The point is this, that regardless of what your rebellion looks like, when you come to Jesus in repentance and faith, you find a place to belong. There's a place for you. There's a place for you in your disobedience. There's a place for you with your messed up resume. There's a place that you can come. And like we heard in our, bab in our baptism stories last week, that's what happens when the core events of history and Jesus' life and death, when they intersect our personal lives, we find belonging despite our past, despite our inherent rebellion. And I need to stop and ask this morning, have you found that place of belonging? Have you experienced the, the personal experience of the forgiveness of your sins? Because this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about abstract. We're not talking about in theory. This is not some religious philosophy lecture. 
This has to do with our eternal souls. The Bible says that if we don't repent of our sins, we are already spiritually condemned. We are dead men walking. The Bible says in John chapter 3, we all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But at the end of that chapter in John 3, 36, it says whoever obeys the son has life, but whoever disbelieves or disobeys the son, the wrath of God abides on him. The good news of the gospel is the only way to escape the wrath of God is through believing in Jesus Christ, his son. And when you do, there is a place of belonging despite your rebellion. Second implication. In the gospel, we find belonging for repentant rebels. Secondly, in the gospel, we find forgiveness for our real guilt. In verse 3, Christ died for our sins. It doesn't just say Christ died. It says Christ died for our sins. He died not just on our behalf, The implication in the language is he died in our place. There is forgiveness for real guilt. And I think that far too often we forget about this. And I don't know how we do. That for every one of our sins, perhaps some of us, whether we're influenced by Catholicism or maybe just functionally we've heard a lot of preaching about holiness, the way we think about our salvation is that when we trusted Christ, whenever that was, all of those past sins got covered by Jesus, and now we're kind of on our own. Like those sins, you know, God's going to get us for them, and, you know, we, we better make sure that we perform well enough that we don't feel the wrath of those sins. And the mystery that's subsumed under these simple words is ask yourself this question. How many of your sins did Jesus die for? How many of your sins did Jesus die for? And he died for all of them. He died for the sins that at the moment you trusted Christ that were past, but he also died for the sins that were in your future. And this is the incredible, incredible glory of the forgiveness for the very real guilt. It's not just guilt feelings. It's real guilt we have as sinners before a holy God. And in the gospel, Paul says it this way. He's explaining and emphasizing the gospel and its importance. And he says, Christ died on behalf of us in our place. He died for our sins. Third, in the gospel we find clarity for daily living. Look at verse 10 again. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's interesting if you track through the New Testament, uh, a lot of talk these days about self-image, right? If you track Paul's self-image after he comes to faith, self-image is not so much a biblical concept, but just bear with me for a moment. It's interesting that you find, first of all, Paul says here in one of the early letters, he says, I am the least of the apostles. Later on, he writes to the Ephesians, and he says, I am the least of all the saints. And then he gets toward the end of his life, he writes to Timothy, and you remember what he says? He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Early on, I'm the least of the apostles. And then he argues, I'm the least of the saints. 
And he gets to the end of his life and he recognizes the depth of God's grace. And he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. But that's the grace of God. Grace is undeserved favor. It's God's help that you can't claim based on any merit. You recognize this is the folly of thinking that you can perform well enough to receive God's grace. That denies the definition of grace. Grace is for the undeserving. And the reason this was so important to Paul is because he had lived so much of his life trying as hard as he could to earn the favor of God. Even to the extent that he had persecuted the church because at that time he felt that was the way he would earn the favor of the God of Israel by persecuting those that followed Jesus. And he came to understand that all that he was, all that he had, all that he ever would be was by the grace of God. Look at it again. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And that gives us clarity. That gives us clarity about our lives. It gives us clarity about our decisions. He'd had enough of performance. He was now living by grace. And contrary to the popular accusation, it didn't cause him to live a lazy life. Because if you look at the verse again, he says, I worked hard. Wait a minute, Paul, why were you working hard? You just said you didn't have to earn God's favor. He works hard because he loves God. He was grateful for the grace of God, and he wanted to give 100%. Why would he give less than 100% to the God who had forgiven him of his sins, who had given him as a rebel a place to belong? He was motivated by the grace of God, by the love of God, and he worked hard. And this is the basis of standing firm. We're going to see it when we reach the end of the chapter. Glance down there. Look at the end of chapter 15. We won't get there for a few weeks, but notice what he says at the end of chapter 15. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why? Because you're working hard? No, because of the grace of God. And this gives clarity to life. It gives clarity to your suffering. It gives clarity to your heartache. It gives clarity to your disappointments. You are what you are by the grace of God. And though you might not experience, here's where the rubber meets the road, though you might not experience the kind of fulfillment or the kind of answered prayer perhaps or the kind of, of removal of hardship that you want in this particular circumstance, when you have this global scope of what the gospel is and what the gospel does, it gives you clarity and it gives you steadfastness to keep going, trusting that God is working his purpose in you by his grace, because of who he is. Clarity for daily living. And it was so hard in this text not to preach the whole chapter, and I'm not going to do that because we're going to be in it for a few weeks. But lastly, let me show you, I'll just mention it, because we're going to circle back to it in the weeks to come. It's what Paul deals with in this chapter. But in the gospel, we also find hope now and forever. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The reason there's hope in the gospel is because Jesus' literal death, burial, and resurrection means that there is an eternal ongoing purpose to our lives, even to our physical existence. And that's what he fleshes out in the rest of the chapter. There's a reason to hope. And I recognize I say those words right now to people 
that maybe your body is in pain or maybe you're uncertain about your health. And I'm here to tell you that chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians holds a promise and hope for you. Because Jesus physically lived in this earth, he will redeem the suffering of our physical bodies in an eternal way. And that's a promise we can bank on. The basis for all our hope is Jesus' real resurrection. These are your implications. We find belonging for rebels. We find forgiveness for our guilt. We find clarity for living. And we find hope now and forever. And so glance with me back in verse 11. It's the last verse for our text this morning. Verse 11 says this, Whether then, Corinthian church, whether then it was I, Paul the apostle, or they, the other apostles, so we preach and so you believed. You see what he's doing? He's reorienting them back to their faith in Jesus. And he basically says this, all the Corinthians mess, if you've been here over the last few months, what a mess they were. As a church, the division, the, the, the problems, all of the infighting, the, the strange ways that they were practicing their spiritual gifts, the oddness of their gatherings for the Lord's table, all of these things, all of the, their mess could be traced back to a failure to remember and to embrace and to live out the grace of God. And I want to tell you that no less than that, our mess too, as we deal with the mess of our lives, sometimes we've brought the mess upon ourselves, sometimes it's this broken world, sometimes it's the evil deeds of others, we fail too often to remember to embrace and to live out the gospel. I don't mean to be simplistic this morning. What I find in this text is that the defining reality of your life, not just Sunday morning, but Tuesday afternoon, and over the weekend, students, and dealing with a difficult boss in your place of employment, or dealing with heartache about your family, or whatever you struggle with, the starting place and the ground for you, the foundation is the fact that God saves sinners. And if He saves sinners, He has a purpose for us. And He is working in our lives. And that doesn't make our problems go away. It doesn't automatically correct our emotions. But it is the ground upon which we face every challenge in our lives. And if you neglect that, if you neglect that for some worldly philosophy, or some temporal fix, or even worse, some kind of chemical correction. If that's the way you want to face that, you will end up being overwhelmed. You'll end up not much different than the Corinthian church with all of these problems that they had neglected the fundamental reality of what God has done and is doing through His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen again to these words from verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you as first importance 
what I also received. Here's your takeaway this morning. At the end of the day, the gospel is all we have, and the gospel is all we need. At the end of the day, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, it's all we have, and it's all we need. The church, one another's, the gifts of grace, the work of the Holy Spirit, the glorious Word of God, all of that subsumed under God's kindness to us in the gospel. And the gospel is all we have, and the gospel is all we need. This text is an Easter text. Years ago, I was preaching it, and as is my habit on Sunday morning, I usually pretty much open up Starbucks. And so I'm at Starbucks, and I've got my notes, and I'm getting ready on Easter Sunday, dressed for Easter service, you know. And a friend of mine who worked at the local mortuary, he came in. His name was Will. And we greeted one another, and I realized he worked at the mortuary, by the way. He was dressed for work as well. Now stop and think about that. We were going to celebrate Easter and new life, but people were still dying. He was still going to work at the mortuary. You realize what that means? What we're going to find in 1 Corinthians before we're through is that your biggest problem is not the disappointment of your children. Your biggest problem is not your financial pressure right now. Your biggest problem is not your concerns about your, your physical health. Your biggest problem is death. And the gospel has solved that problem. At the end of the day, all we have is the gospel. At the end of the day, the gospel is all we need. Let's pray. Father, speak to our hearts today about the glory of the gospel. Help us strive to see how your glorious work for us in Jesus speaks into every trial, every trouble, every burden, every place where we've yielded, every place where we need your strength to do this work in a way that changes us. And we pray for this morning for any who may be with us who have never in a personal and real way trusted your Son as Lord and Savior. We pray that you would move in their lives and give them enlightenment, gifts of faith and repentance today. We pray that as we come to your table, we would do so in humility, we would do so in worship. We would do so with an eagerness to allow these truths that we represent with physical elements to allow these truths to affect our thinking and emotions every day. Be pleased, Father, to hear and answer our prayer through the goodness and grace of your Son and through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.